New York and California try to rebuke the Supreme Court's broom. Plus, an interview with Rob Pincus of the Gunmakers Watch on the implementation of President Biden's ghost gun kit ban. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out our membership options today if you want to get this podcast uh, a day early or appear on the show. We've had a couple great member segments as of late. Uh, so if, if you'd like to be on the show, that you joining up would we'll, we'll give you the opportunity to do that. Uh, you can also check out our free weekly newsletter if you just want to get a taste of uh, the kind of reporting that we focus on, which tends to be, uh, you know, hard news reporting is uh, done in a sober, serious way, which I think sets us apart a bit from other outlets that exist out there, whether they know basically nothing about guns or very little about politics. Uh, I think we fall in a sweet spot of knowing uh, both of those things fairly well. But uh, this week, we are going to be talking about the new ghost gun regulation that has now gone into effect from the Biden administration and maybe a bit of the NRA turmoil. And to do that, I have a, a special guest in uh, the, the in Rob Pincus, who is the uh, organizer of the Gunmakers Match, which I profiled last year. Um, that They've had a couple more since then. Uh, and also a board member at Save the Second, which is an organization dedicated to internal reform of the NRA. So welcome to the show, Rob. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, what The Reload is all about and uh, what you bring to this space, which I do think is is a unique, truly journalistic perspective. So I appreciate that. And uh, it's always good to talk with you and, and certainly important that we're talking about uh, both the, the private gun making and uh, what, what the latest evolutions at the NRA are. Yeah. And for people who don't know you, uh, who are listening, can you just give a little more background about yourself? So I have been in the gun industry since 1997. So 25, 26 years now. Uh, my first shot show is sort of how I marked that. Um, been a gun owner and firearms enthusiast, shooter, hunter, all that stuff uh, from before then, obviously. I uh, was in law enforcement for a brief time. I uh, was in the military for even less time. Uh, graduated from military college, took a commission and, and didn't spend much time there. Found out that the public sector really wasn't for me. I wanted to work in the private sector and primarily I've been an educator. Um, I left law enforcement work in 2001 to start teaching people, both armed professionals and private citizens uh, about responsible gun use and how to be better prepared to defend themselves or others with a gun when they need to. And along the way, I've uh, become more and more active in the politics of gun rights, um, both Internal and external politics of gun rights, I think, is a good way to put it. Um, and that internal reform of the NRA is an example of internal gun rights politics. And, of course, lobbying for uh, the right to continue to keep uh, manufacturing firearms privately to make guns for personal use. And expanding that hobby is a big example of the external gun rights politics. Yeah. And you've certainly uh, not been afraid to express your opinions over the years and uh, you know, however the chips may fall in that way. And so there's plenty of people who uh, very much like you and a lot of people who very much do not like you. Right? Well, uh, I, I'm more interested in my ideas, right? I think yes. that's it. You don't have to like me, uh, but if you if you understand the ideas and if I understand your ideas, then then we're okay. We can, we can coexist. So let's talk a bit about um, this ghost gun regulation, the, the 80% lower, the ghost gun kit ban. 
um, that is now in effect. Uh, what has been the practical outcome of this so far? It just went into effect. How how is the market reacting to it? How are uh, you know gun builders reacting to it? Well, it's been interesting. You know, back in April, the the ATFE and I'll probably just call them the ATF now for short. Everybody knows what we're talking about. The ATF decided on what their final rule changes were going to be uh, re- as regards to what is a gun. Essentially, that's the question that that they're trying to answer. And and obviously, in courts in different jurisdictions, both the federal level, state level. Um, municipal level, people get into a lot of uh, really odd semantic and pedantic sometimes debate over what is a firearm or what constitutes, uh, you know, quote unquote, assault weapon, what is uh, quote unquote, high capacity. Well, at the root of all of that really is which part is regulated or which parts are regulated by the ATF. And people will get into, again, a semantic debate over laws versus rules. Well, the law is written so that the ATF can regulate the firearms trade and and in some ways private firearms ownership at Mm -hmm. the federal level. The way they do that, the interpretations of that law, the rules, if you will, they actually have uh, some control over, um, independent control without legislative action. Now, that's something that's being called into question now because of a recent court case at the Supreme Court level. Um, dealing with the APA, which is essentially a, a counterpart type regulatory agency under the executive branch, making up rules. And the Supreme Court saying, no, you can't make those types of rules, quote unquote, without going through the legislature, without involving uh, the other branch, another branch of government. So that may affect the ATF. So, yeah, I mean, the, there's certainly going to be, I think, further legal challenges to this rulemaking, although the ones that have come up thus far have not succeeded in blocking it. Um, and all. so it has gone into effect. Uh, it, it, you know, in the media generally, um, it's described as a ghost gun ban, yeah. uh, which uh, that's how the president wants wants it to be that's seen. How, I think, yeah. but but in it's, in it's practice, really not that. Yeah. yeah, it's not that at all. And and what the, the so let's get down to so that's the kind of the hundred thousand foot view. So these mm-hmm. are changes to the rules about what makes a gun and what doesn't. Obviously, then that affects as a trickle down effect on what. I can purchase through the mail without having to go through a federally licensed firearms dealer, right? That's probably the best way to look at this. So six months ago, you could buy uh, a box. And I'm going to use this. This brand, Polymer 80, is probably the most ubiquitous brand. And they're, they're really to be credited with a lot of making private gun making more popular um, mm-hmm. and, and more accessible for a lot of people over the last you know, handful of years. So this brand, and there's other brands out there, but you would buy this box and inside of this box, you would get what I'll refer to as a a frame precursor. So in other words, something that you can make into a legal firearm. Now, this one has been made into a legal firearm. I don't have any raw precursors right now, but it's been drilled and I've had the supports, uh, the areas that block the installation of parts milled out. So we say drilled for the pins that secure the parts and milled so that the parts will actually go in. You can see I've put the front and rear rails, the metal parts into this, this now firearm. This is legally a firearm now. Right. So the, the thing that that comes with six months ago, when you bought that, you got this uh, referred to as a jig. Uh, the frame precursor lives inside of that. And that tells you where to drill the holes. You can see it's marked there to tell you where to drill holes. And it right. shows you where you would relieve the rest of the plastic that's blocking the, or some of the plastic anyway, that's blocking the installation of parts. There's some other plastic on the inside that also blocks the installation of parts. Right. And so, so the so the 
the 80% as people call them lowers the 80% finished, or you need to complete another 20% of the work to actually make the part usable. Um, that came with the jig to the jig. actually do that finishing work. And the drill bits and the, bits. And the rails is what would come in that package. But again, let's say, I mean, six weeks ago, but but let's go before the rule changes to make it a little bit more black and white. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing to understand is that 80% is a made up term, right? That was a marketing sure. term. Polymer 80 uses it, 80% arms uses it. It goes back decades. Uh, the reality is what you had to do as the manufacturer was either go to market with something that you didn't believe was a firearm and be prepared to defend yourself legally if the ATF said, no, you're selling guns, or you could send a sample to the ATF and say, do you think this is a gun? And they would say, nope, we don't think that's a gun. Okay, cool. I'm going to sell it through the mail. No registration, no FFLs, yes, no Another serial. Another term for them is paperweights. Paperweights, wind chimes. Uh, you know, <laughs> because we've seen technically all they're not guns. guns. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's a frame precursor. Now, now the, what the ATF has said along the way, this goes back several years, they have occasionally stepped in and said, you can sell the piece of plastic, but not the plastic and the tools to complete it, or even the instructions to complete it. Right. Otherwise, we think you're making it too easy. So this imaginary 80% becomes easier if it all comes in one box. And they, they did that with a company or a product called SS80, which is a, a brand uh, created by the Glock store um, franchise of, of gun building kits. And they said, you can sell the part but there's not enough work that has to be done. So you have to sell the jig and the rails separately. Right. And what they did with Polymer 80 was they said, okay, you can sell the jig and the rails and the drill bits and all that together. Yes, that's okay. But then a few, a couple years ago, almost two years ago now, they went and uh, gave them a cease and desist on selling what Polymer 80 called a buy, build, shoot kit. And what that kit did was it also included all of the, the slide, barrel, all the upper parts that get mated to, and these are different sizes for the people the people in the audience that are gunny. They realize this is a Glock 19 sizes and 70 sizes, but they, they sold the parts all together in one box. So you got the lower parts kit or the trigger, all the stuff that goes in here and the slide and the barrel, you got it all in one box and you were able to buy, buy it, build it, and then go shoot it and answer the gun. Well, I actually got, I think I might've gotten one of the last few shipments out of Nevada in December of 2000, maybe late November of 2020. And then the ATF came in and said, nope, you can't do that anymore. Um, we're not going to let you sell the buy, build, shoot kits because you're making it too easy. And, and a lot of people got very upset, but they didn't realize this had also been done to SS80 a couple of years before because it wasn't as popular. And that company's never been even close to as large as uh, an influential company. Uh, Hmm. manufacturer as, as polymer radius. So there's been some incrementalism in the ATF's approach to this. What they said in April was that as of August 24th, we hereby rescind any implied or explicit permission we've given you to sell something as a non-gun. And if you want to sell something as a non-gun, looking at you, polymer 80, what we want you to do is submit the, the precursor, the, the thing, the block, the, the paperweight, the wind chime, the, the precursor, any tools, any parts, the packaging, the instructions, and believe it or not, the marketing materials that you're going to use in conjunction with selling this, this thing that you think isn't yet a gun. And of course, you think about that. That means I can't run. I would, I would have to like plan out my Christmas sale marketing, right, to send that to the ATF. Otherwise, if I use any other marketing during the year or in the future after they say yes, they can always come back and say, 
uh, no, we didn't approve that marketing. We didn't approve that post to social media. So it got really convoluted. And what I think has happened, and again, I don't have all the insider information, but what I believe has happened is universally across the board, all of the manufacturers of these gun kits have said, no, we're not going to play that game. We're not going to just even try to, to comply with that. What we're going to do is we're going to think about this for a long time. And so for, the, for, for six months, really nothing, or for four and a half months, nothing happens. There's rumors about what's going to happen, but nobody's sure. So Thursday hits. Last week, Thursday hits. One company that, that and I, I, I know a lot of people in the gun building space, it, it appears that one company went very public with the idea that they were going to start selling the Polymer 80 boxes with just the frame precursor and the insert rails. No instructions, no jig, and no drill bits. And they showed pictures of packaging, which clearly appears to be from Polymer 80 with a, with a new uh, kind of closed cell foam insert padding that goes in the box. Because in, in the traditional boxes, the, the jig sort of fills up all the space, right? So instead of just having this rattling around in there, there's now like a fitted foam that this fits into and that the rails fit into. And that's what you're buying for a, for a slightly lower price than what was being sold. Well, that company, um, No Quarter Innovation, Innovations, announced this on, I think, Wednesday night, the, the, the night before the, the rule went into effect, Tuesday or Wednesday night. Then on the 24th, they started selling them. They weren't shut down. They, they continued. The ATF didn't show up. They didn't get a cease and desist. They didn't get raided. The packages have gone out. People have received their packages now. And a few days later, Polymer 80 formally announced on their website that they were also going to be doing the same thing. Um, almost to the point where a lot of people are wondering, well, did they did they say, hey, we'll pay your legal bills if this goes bad? You're a smaller fish. You try it. Well, no quarter innovations um, successfully launched that way after the rule change. And that's what Polymer 80 is doing. So what that essentially means is there's really very little practical effect of the rule changes. Now, there's other things that, that we can get into on the rule changes. But as far as private gun making goes, if that's the truth, if that if the ATF is not going to step in and say, no, Polymer 80, you can't sell the precursor and the rails, there's really not going to be much effect at all for two reasons. One, there's there's hundreds of thousands of these probably out there. Let's say there's at least tens of thousands of these that people have used as I've used this one. These can be reused. Second, you could use measurements of pre-exit on a Glock or another gun that you've built. You could just measure yourself where the holes need to be drilled out. It, you don't need a jig to remove the, the blocks of plastic up here. Um, and also, there are people in the 3D printing community, um, several of whom I spoke with leading up to the rule change, uh, that are now producing printable files that if you or a friend has a 3D printer, you can print out a jig, because this is really just plastic, that you can then sandwich around your frame precursor and know exactly where to drill the holes. And so you, there, you've actually like, done that second bit there, right? You've, you've done that. In real life, haven't you? Um, as far as 3D printing guns? Yeah, 3D printing a jig. Oh, no, I am not 3D printing. So a good friend of mine, um, he goes by Mr. Snow on the internet. He and mm -hmm. I have been talking all week. He has um, gone through four iterations, five iterations of development. And I actually have the file on the very computer that I'm talking to you on. But I've been traveling and I'm not going to be at my printer. I'm going to have tomorrow, um, Friday of this week, I'll actually print one for the first time and use it to complete a frame, but I've seen three other people with the prototype jig. Um, so I'm sure the, the 3D printing community really stepping up to support the kit building community is kind of cool to see because like every other niche in the gun world, even the gun building 
uh, niche of the gun community has its factions. And sometimes it's divided, the 3D printers versus the kit builders. And here we see 3D printers moving forward to support the kit builders, which is really cool. So have you seen people actually use the 3D printed jig to complete um, an 80% lower? I have. I've seen two two other people outside of the designer, uh, Mr. Snow, John. Um, two other people have already successfully built working guns using his jig and not the the jigs supplied by Polymerady. So, you know, if this continues, if the ATF doesn't, you know, make an overreach or decide, no, you can't do that. You didn't send us a sample. Any of the things that we're afraid they might do, uh, this will have net zero effect really at the end of the day on private kit building. Now, in the, in the last four months, I will tell you, there have been two camps. One is well, they're just going to make them all illegal anyway, so I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to order any more kids. I'm going to plan on having either destroy or serialize all my unserialized guns. And then there's been another camp that has been, you know, it's, there's been a rush on kits. You couldn't, you could barely buy a kit with a jig um, during August because places were selling out as fast as they would get their stock. Polymer 80, oddly, just put everything out of stock. They chose to sell nothing for a long time. And didn't make any formal announcement until uh, days out again, days after the rule went into effect to say what they were going to do. Um, but, you know, I'm glad they're back in the game and I'm glad they're pushing forward because. They've, the, well, go ahead. Sorry. I was going because it is a really great way for people to enter into the hobby of private gun making. The kit builds, I think they're almost like, a, you know, the, the first one's free. You don't have to do a lot of work. It's relatively easy to learn how to do. And. Um, sometimes people in the gun community, that almost scares them. Like, wait a minute, maybe, maybe I don't know if they think the ATF has a point. Like, maybe it is too easy. Uh, I, there's no such thing when it comes to freedom, right? Private gun making, if we believe in shall not be infringed, we should have the resources to be able to, and the freedom to make our own guns. And Polymer 80 and the other Polymer 80% precursor companies uh, do a great job of, of making it very approachable for people. And Polymer 80 has also begun to... Um make serialized uh, kits now as well too, right? That, that's they did, yeah. They, done. they made the serialized kits available very early on. And honestly, that scared a lot of people. It almost looked like Polymerady was giving up on the unserialized private gun making market. You know, several years ago, now Polymerady went through a change of ownership and they've had some some definite changes of, in terms of the way they interact with the, with the community, uh, the gun building community. What they did before the, the ownership change, however, many years ago, they started producing fully manufactured guns. I actually have one of them. One, they did it for a couple of reasons. One, I'm sure they did it to diversify their company and to give them a, a sales revenue stream that wasn't reliant on unserialized guns should the federal government or, or the majority of states come in and say, this is now illegal. I'm sure they intended to fight that um, along with you know, Gun Owners of America and Firearms Policy Coalition, all the, the regular characters in court. Um, but at the same time, they clearly were giving themselves a backup position with serialized guns. The other thing serialized guns allowed them to do was get into stores that that weren't supporting gun building with their brand. It also allowed them to sponsor competitive shooters because, you know, one of the reasons we started the gun makers match was that uh, you couldn't use a home built gun in most of the or really any of the significant um, competition disciplines around the country. The the IDPA, USPSA, all those things. Mm -hmm. So having serialized manufactured guns, it's almost like stock cars, right? Like you have to have, you, you know, it's not really a Toyota Camry going around Daytona at 250 miles an hour, you know, but uh, 160 miles an hour, but it, <laughs> right. it says Toyota Camry on it because it's a stock car. It's based on a production car in some theoretical way. Competition shooting is like that as well. So the, the polymerity getting into the serialized guns originally was just uh, marketing probably more than anything else. But now 
They are selling kits for people that want to get into the hobby of the craftsmanship, the the understanding, the creativity, maybe of this, you know building their own gun, putting their hands on it. Uh, but it's you have to buy it just like you would buy a completed gun, which defeats the purpose for most of the private gun builders. Right, right. Uh, so I mean, it th- this all does sound fairly in line with what the regulation actually says, and honestly, you know, there's a there's a lot of media coverage about this. Uh, it was big push by the White House to get this implemented, but it, it it doesn't really seem to change the status quo all that much because, like you mentioned there, they raided Polymer 80 before this rule went into effect, gave them the cease and desist over these kits, um, and all the regulation appears to do, uh, at least when you read through it, and I'm not a lawyer, right, so it's not legal advice to any gun makers out there, but all it appears to do is say that the kits – when you pair the the eighty percent lower the precursor part with the jig and the tools required to finish it in a kit, that becomes the same thing as a firearm in the eyes of the ATF. And now, um, you know, it, it all revolves this... around this phrase "readily convertible," and and it's obviously a very subjective phrase. And we're going to have to have some court cases and some precedent set on what "quote unquote" readily convertible means. The only real reference they have right now that they throw out there is this 2017 court case, which talks about like eight days worth of work with $60,000 worth of machinery prevents something from being considered readily convertible. But obviously there's a lower bar and, and that bar has yet to be firmly established. But again, I'm, I'm proud to see the, the community moving forward with gun building. And I, I have no doubt that unfortunately there's going to be some court cases before this is settled. Yeah. I mean, I, look, I think the definition, the new definition of firearm that the ATF has has come up with and is now part of the uh, federal rule uh, rulemaking through the rulemaking process is now f- finalized um, is extremely expansive and could be interpreted in any number of ways. However, what the ATF says they're going to do, what they claim uh, their interpretation is going to be of this expansive definition, uh, at least for now, uh, and that's, I guess, one of the bigger dangers is like you're giving this agency a lot more power, even though they're saying right now they only want to use it in this limited way. You know, they could always change their mind on that down the line. But the way they say they're going to enforce it is very similar to how they were already enforcing uh, federal law on. on it uh, is. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to be too, I don't want to, I don't want people to think that like I'm okay with this, but I do want to acknowledge that sure. yeah, for sure. This isn't a big impact, but it is one more incremental step. In other words, before they said SS80, no, you can't put these together. Polymer 80, you can't put all this together, but you can put some of it together. Now they're saying, we'll let you know, but we think things going together is bad in the same package sure. or at the same store. Even they're talking about like this idea that if you and I colluded to start a business, where you were going to sell the jigs and I was going to sell the frames, they would consider us uh, constructing or conspiring to commit a crime. And that that would be a problem too. So there's a lot, there's still a lot more to be worked out on all of this. Um, For example, you wouldn't have polymer 80 would probably be in violation if you went to their website and said, uh, when you ordered the thing, if they also sent you a link in your receipt, your email receipt, oh, you ordered the thing, let us send you a link to download the jig file from some other website. They, I think the ATF might take action against that. So people, I, you know, I, here's the thing. I'm all for civil disobedience. If you want to, you know, take your un, 
registered SBR and, and put your hands up and wear it, uh, you know, across your chest to the state capitol and say, arrest me. I think the NFA should be taken down and I want to fight it in court. Have your civil disobedience. What I don't want to see is people sort of innocently making the mistake because they assume, oh, nobody's enforcing anything. I'm just going to take a, my old jig and I'm going to get my buddy a precursor for Christmas. And I'm going to put them together. And I'm going to send them through the mail to another mm. state. You could be violating yeah. state and federal law by sending what what the federal government now considers a firearm. You know, for example, um, you know, I live in Florida and Colorado, right? In Denver, the city and county of Denver, I can't have legally, I can't have unserialized guns anymore. I can't participate in gun making. So one has to wonder, would the, the city uh, attorney's office was very clear six months, six, eight months ago when that law went into effect that we could still have the kits. We just couldn't complete them in the city or county of Denver. So now I have to wonder, since the federal government apparently considers this these two things together a firearm, if I had these two things together at my place in Denver, would the city of Denver come in and say, well, now you've got a firearm, even though you haven't done the work because the federal government considers it a firearm. It's an unserialized gun and we're going to charge you with a city violation. So That's obviously people point. have to be aware of that. Yeah, I think you're making a very good point here, which is uh, while the sort of practical effect of stopping people from making guns is not uh, fully there with this new regulation. There are a number of new questions uh, that are raised, and this sort of codifies the direction that the ATF was already going in. But now, instead of just extrapolating from how the, you know, what they said when they were rate, when they rated Polymer 80 a few years ago, um, now we have in, uh, the, uh, as a federal rule, you know, that that's formalized. And it so is. that is, and it is significant, but it's, it's not, it, I guess my main point is just that it's not going to have the effect that the president or much of the media has, not has sort of hoped. Well, that let's be honest. This is par for the course for the summer of 2022, because I keep hearing about this sweeping, uh, not, you know, sweeping bipartisan gun legislation that was signed earlier in the year. And when you, when you look at that actual law, and again, I don't want to be misquoted in the gun community as, as, as you know, sometimes happens. I'm not, I'm not in favor of, of some of the things that were done, particularly in terms of encouraging the red flag laws in that earlier legislation, but that's not sweeping gun control. 97% of that bill has literally nothing to do with gun control. It's, it's school safety. It also includes programs that will help the gun community in terms of mental health, proactive mental health care and things like that. Tying them that to red flag laws is a problem and encouraging states to have red flag laws that are unfair and just essentially de facto gun control. Uh, those That's not a good idea. And I don't like that part of that legislation. But most of what was really gun control, like controlling the, the minimum age to buy guns and things like that, was was removed from that bill before it was passed. Um, the, the only thing now that's age related in that earlier bill that was signed is uh, the issue that Criminal records, juvenile criminal records can now be used as part of a background check for young adults that want to buy guns. And quite frankly, like, I don't think there should be a difference between a 16 year old who murders somebody and a 19 year old that murders somebody. If they're involved in criminal activity and they're they're willfully and knowingly killing people and they get arrested and charged for that, I don't think magically at 18 that person's record should be expunged. I do understand the idea of restoration of rights, obviously, and I'm in favor of considering that maybe. It's not once a felon, always a felon, and how we work that out in our society. But at the end of the day, again, the government, the, the military, or the, the sort of the, the military law enforcement way of doing things like all or nothing and thinking about things in black and white might be a great way to, to envision ideology. But what we really have in practical 
the practical world is the media is saying sweeping gun legislation was passed earlier this year. And that's just simply not true. And that's not to dismiss the intention or the desire of the Biden administration to put sweeping gun legislation into play. But they just haven't done it, um, either with the earlier law or looks like with the assault weapons ban that won't get passed in the Senate or with these rule changes at the ATF. Okay, that's an interesting point. Uh, Moving on from the federal level now, I do want to talk a little bit more about the state level on this issue, because um, as you alluded to with uh, Denver, uh, there are more significant restrictions coming into place at the state and local level. Uh, For instance, Polymer 80 just lost uh, a lawsuit in Washington, D.C., where they're being fined $4 million for selling guns without um, a license is, you know, that's the the claim, at least because they've the, the judge determined that the um, and the judge and the city determined that the kits were guns when they you know, were sold or should it be treated the same way. And so now Palmer 80 is facing, you know, a serious, uh, serious legal threat over that. And it, I'm sure that won't be the last place uh, that they will uh, experience that kind of um, legal fight. And so how do you see things playing out uh, at the state level with um, these efforts to restrict or eliminate home gun making? Uh, it's like everything else. There's, there's, there's going to be this ebb and flow. And our states, you know, I, I, you know that I travel internationally, teach internationally. I spend a lot of time in Europe for 15 plus years now. When I'm in Europe, people will tend to generalize like gun laws in the U.S. And I have to explain to them like, no, you got to understand our states are sort of like the countries of Europe, the, the, the radically different gun laws that exist at the state levels in the U.S. under the federal government um, can be mind boggling, as we know. Uh, and, and they generally get that right because in Europe, it's the same way. Some countries are far more uh, little L liberal with gun ownership and, and others are far more restrictive with gun ownership. So in the U.S., we're going to continue to have that. Um, I think if we look at concealed carry laws over, let's say, the last hundred years, we're going to get a really good feel for where every gun issue is going to go in terms of the federal government saying something, setting a bar. The states underneath of that bar deciding what they're going to do on an individual level. Um, California, more restrictive. Arizona, less restrictive, usually, is the way that would go. And then it gets it back up to the federal level at the Supreme Court as these restrictions in the more restrictive states are challenged. And the Supreme Court over the last 50 years, for sure, has generally been pro-Second Amendment, pro-gun freedom and anti-restriction. So even as recently as the Bruin decision, we see as kind of one of the final straws for you know the right to carry a concealed gun for defensive purposes in public. Today, we have over 60 million people in the U.S. who can do that legally. 40 years ago, there were less than 2 million people in the United States. Now, I get it. Population has increased, but not 50, you know, but not uh, what, what would that be? 30 fold. Right. So, though the yes, we have 50 million more people maybe than we did 40 years ago at most. But those aren't all the ones that can carry guns. It's been because of the move from 13 states that did not allow any version of legal concealed carry to now we have 25 states, half of the country that allows concealed carry for anyone who can legally own a gun without a permit or without any training whatsoever. That, that idea of constitutional carrier permitless Do you carrier. expect that same sort of trend to continue for gun making? I do. Making? So so I think now with the Bruin decision where they've even said those couple of states and six states, I think that the handful that had, you have to justify the reason you want a permit. 
The Supreme Court has stepped in in 2022 and said, no, you can't. It's, it's a civil right. It's in the Constitution. You cannot make them justify. So now you have to go shall issue. I would expect if it gets if that gets challenged in the future, we may see the Supreme Court of the United States say there is no permit. It's all permitless carry. The Second Amendment essentially is your permit. And we'll, that will really be the final straw for legal defensive concealed carry around the country. I think private gun making will go that way, too. Um, so we have California, uh, Massachusetts, uh, New Jersey, New York, all the usual suspects where they've said either you can't do this or you can only do it with additional hoops to jump through. Denver, again, uh, is kind of an oddball because there is no what what's, you're familiar with as preemption. The state does not forbid lower levels of government inside the state of Colorado from having mm-hmm. higher restrictions. So Denver has some odd restrictions around AR-15 ownership, and now they have this unserialized gun ban. But also very recently, another municipality, um, Superior, Colorado, had their quote-unquote assault weapons ban struck down by a court. And they were told, no, you cannot do that um, based on recent Supreme Court decisions. So yeah, I do think this will all play out in the courts to where we, we see the federal government say something's okay. States say, no, you can't do it. People challenge it. And then the Supreme Court has to come in and say, no, you've got to come up to the federal level in terms of the freedom you're mm-hmm. giving American citizens who happen to reside in your state. I think we'll see the same thing play out with private gun making. Are you concerned at all about uh, you know, the, the use of unserialized firearms in, in crime and how that's driving uh, a lot of media coverage and a lot of these attempts to restrict uh, private gun making. Absolutely. Like, do, do you yeah. think there's legitimacy to this concern or do you think it's overblown? Like what, what's your reaction to it? I absolutely think it's overblown. I mean, I mean, take you know, the president has been a big thing for the president in 2022, but take a look at what, what happened. I think it was in April when he had his, uh, you know, white house um, outside the white house, big press conference on how he was going to be cracking down on ghost guns earlier this year. The, the, victim, and, and I don't want to take anything away from her and her trauma and her pain, but the, the young lady that he brought there to speak about this, you know, she was a victim of a school shooting that occurred with an unserialized gun. And a friend of hers, I think a couple of friends of hers were killed. She was injured. Mm-hmm. But the truth of that, when you dig a little deeper into that story, that gun was stolen. And it was stolen from a safe that had both serialized and unserialized guns. So it was sort of a random, you know, the gun on the right, the gun on the left that this kid used to shoot up the school. It wasn't the existence of the potential for an unserialized gun that led to that shooting. So when you think about it, one of the most powerful guys in the world, the best he could do was come up with someone who incidentally was injured by a ghost gun. Now, I get it. There was a a shooting in Sacramento. There was a a very uh, well-known shooting in San Diego where a gentleman was prohibited from buying a gun. He was not allowed. He failed a background check. He went out and bought a kit, built the gun, and then shot up the gas lamp district. Like, I get it. It does happen. But we always have these issues with with guns, right? Like, punishing the many for the actions of the few is not how America is supposed to work. And it's certainly not how we're supposed to apply our freedoms when it comes to civil rights. So, yes, I'm concerned about negative outcomes. Absolutely, I'm concerned about intentional, willful, criminal activities involving firearms or not. Um, but I think that's the that's the crux, right? Like, I, I don't differentiate between a guy who's going to try to stab somebody and a guy who's trying to shoot somebody. If he's a criminal with the intention of murder, he's a criminal with the intention of murder. And I definitely err on the side of freedom isn't safe when it comes to individuals exercising their rights. So I, I, my deal is, yeah, a guy could try to kill me with a ghost gun. A guy could try to kill me with a stolen gun. A guy could try to kill me with a legally purchased gun because he's never 
done anything to get himself to the level of prohibited person before. I need to be ready to deal with that. That's the reality of, of living on earth with people who are free to, to maybe try to hurt me. Okay. Uh, now, speaking of gun rights, I want to talk a little bit about the NRA and um, the state of that, because you obviously uh, had uh, were a, you're a board member on a group that was dedicated to trying to reform the NRA internally after um, a lot of the the scandals broke from back in 2019. And, uh, you know, the latest on that front seems to be that uh, Phil Journey, who is a leading dissident board member, who's been involved in uh, a number of attempts to try and remove Wayne LaPierre from control of the organization to intervene in court cases. Uh, for instance, the bankruptcy, he tried to get an examiner appointed, uh, him and a, a couple of other board members tried to intervene in that way. He's tried to intervene in, uh, some of them have tried to intervene in, in the New York case. Uh, Rocky Marshall did. He was also um, uh, the same way that Journey is now not being renominated by the board to run for the board. It's kind of a convoluted system. They have, but, <laughs> right. but basically at the NRA, if you want to get on the ballot that goes out to members for board elections, uh, that way that the vast majority of people actually accomplish that is to be nominated by the board's nominating committee. And usually people who are incumbent and want to run again, uh, have the courtesy of being renominated. Uh, but in this case with Rocky Marshall and Phil journey, that courtesy was not extended. Neither one was renominated. And now it's very unlikely that they will be reelected to the board or make it back on to the board again uh, at this point. There is an alternative track, which is to um, get on by petition, but uh, that's very difficult to do and has rarely actually happened um, on the, uh, the NRA board. I think just maybe you get like one or two people out of the 76 that actually get on that way, uh, if that. So, uh, you know, you're seeing this removal of internal uh, dissent among board members. The board is very supportive of Wayne LaPierre. Uh, you had a uh, rock. Uh, Phil Journey was behind an effort to make uh, to get Alan West to challenge Wayne LaPierre at the last uh, annual meeting that just occurred, and I believe the outcome of that was like five votes, for, or you know, it was a, a handful of votes yeah. for West. And then a handful of votes not for anyone, and then the rest were for for Lapierre. Although a lot of board members didn't show up to the meetings either. Um, <clears throat> anyway, you get the picture here. Anytime somebody has objected to Wayne Lapierre and his leadership of the organization, uh, if they were a board member, they've basically been shut out of the organization, and eventually they're not on the board anymore either because they resigned or weren't renominated. So uh, just first, get, if you want to give me your reaction to this latest news. Yeah, so the, the, there's a few things that have happened recently. Just within the last couple of days, the, the announcement of who's been uh, put on by the nomination committee officially on the ballot. As you said, other people can petition to get on the ballot. And, and we usually see one, two or three that get on the ballot. As you said, very few of them have ever been successful in eventually getting on the board. 
you know, the, the NRA is very uh, incestuous in terms of the way it markets and promotes and, and endorses and, and either officially or unofficially supports the board uh, nominees, the people who are on the ballot in front of the loyal members who are voting. And it's been incredibly hard, as you've noted, for Save the Second or and Phil Journey, Rocky Marshall, Buzz Mills, any of the people who are interested, Oliver North, obviously. It's been very hard for people, even a little bit on the inside or a lot on the inside, to make any reform happen. Um, of other, uh, you know, Oliver North also was not um, put on the ballot. He was not put on by the nomination committee. He has held on to his board position even after he resigned um, as president, sort of in protest over the fact that Wayne LaPierre would not resign because of all the scandals and dysfunction that he saw when he was president. Uh, we've also got, you know, Graham Hill is one that I think is interestingly not renominated. He's been um, a, an incredibly responsible board member in terms of doing what he thought he needed to do to keep the organization. Uh, moving forward and doing what it was supposed to do. He's not um, ever really been identified as any kind of hardcore reformist, um, but he's another guy that I thought was interesting to not see on the ballot. And I don't know if that's his choice. If he certainly, if he's already burned out, I would certainly understand that. Or if they've decided that he's not on board enough. Um, when you look at the nomination committee, the other thing that's gone through this year is very interesting. Isaac Demarest, who beat out Frank Tate. Frank Tate's been the most openly pro-reform candidate uh, for the board for several years. Um, he's been part of this um, since the big blow up in 2019. Uh, he wasn't they, nominated. I members of the he, was, he was not nominated. Um, but last year he got on by petition. He did not make it onto the board. And at the, the 76 seat is voted on by only in-person voting eligible attendees at the NRA annual meeting. And this year, right. um, Isaac Demarest beat him. And very interestingly, Isaac Demarest was nominated onto the ballot. Now, I... Got together with Isaac in uh, Tennessee, I don't know, about three or four months ago, maybe less than that, maybe two months ago. And we had some great conversations. You know, the guy um, and I think Frank, I think some others, I don't want to put words in people's mouths, but all had the idea that Isaac is is into the reform movement. He understands the problems with Wayne. And certainly those of us who were all together in, in Tennessee heard him expressing those opinions uh, very clearly. And I'm hoping that he follows through on a lot of that and really is pushing for reform. You know, the the. Save the Second Organization, people can go to savethe2a.org and see our five tenets of reform. We have five things we wanted to do. We've made a little bit of progress in terms of putting forward a resolution at one of the members' meetings, as is our uh, opportunity as members, to get a change in the attendance policy to actually make it so that members are, are the members of the board are actually active and they can't say, well, I didn't go to the meeting, so I didn't know. They can't sort of uh, skirt their duties as board members, their responsibilities to the members as board members. But, of course, because of COVID, um, none of those rules have really been enforced because people always have that convenient excuse of, well, I'm not going to go because I don't want to travel. So we, we have not been successful internally. And sort of to how you set this up, there's a lot of push for external change from the New York Attorney General's office, from the Washington, D.C. Attorney General's office. And at this point, I will tell you, as, as a strong advocate for the hope of internal change, it really does look like um, Wayne LaPierre and his his regime are only going to be ousted by external forces. And that's, that should be an embarrassment to the gun community. Yeah, I guess that's what I wanted to address overall is like the, the internal reform campaign just has not worked out very well so far. As, as I think you can admit, it's yeah. like uh, there hasn't been much outpouring of support from either current or former NRA members uh, that – Journey has tried to raise money a number of times and hasn't gotten anywhere with it. Um, you know, you, they've tried a number of legal maneuvers that haven't gone anywhere. Um, 
certainly, you know, even when Frank Tate got on the ballot, he wasn't elected. Yeah. Uh, and he, so it's, it's hard for me to, you know, I, I guess I wonder like, where do things go for those of, uh, those of you who want to see in, internal reform at the NRA and why hasn't, why do you think there hasn't been that it, sort it, of outpouring from NRA members? It has been uh, demoralizing. I'll tell you inside of the reform uh, movement, we've just seen so much, so many hurdles and so many hoops and so many stop gaps that, that re the Wayne LaPierre regime has created around them. You have to remember, you know, the modern NRA has existed since the late seventies. We're coming up on 50 years of the, the current form of the NRA. When Wayne LaPierre's team sort of took over in the late nineties, they have consolidated power and they have changed the rules and regulations and the operating procedures and put people and or policies in the right place to insulate this organization or insulate the leadership of the organization from the average gun owner, right? We've seen the NRA sort of shift from, we're just here to help with all gun owners to, you know, white conservative Christian gun owners as our base. And we're going to, you know, pander to them, fear monger to them, use them as our fundraising target. Uh, the stories are out there. People can, can find them. You and I have talked about them. You've done a great job of covering sort of how we got here. I think that I and others in the reform movement underestimated two things. One, we underestimated the strength to which they've consolidated and protected their power through policies and, and making it almost impossible even for board members to really push through any significant change. And I think that's why we've seen the mass resignations early on in the reform movement, 2019, uh, late 2019, summer of 2019, we saw some very important people, very interested in reform, just throw their hands up and say, you know what, I don't even want to be associated with this because this is going to go so badly. Timothy Knight would be one that comes to mind, who, who left very, very early, Sean Maloney and others. Mm -hmm. uh, then we saw sort of a slow sort of, well, I'm just not going to run again. And over the last few years, we've seen a lot of people just kind of quietly fade away or step aside from the NRA board without making a big deal about it. These were people who maybe were sort of absent minded. A lot of people get on the NRA board as a reward. A lot of people get on the NRA board. They see it as an accomplishment for other things they've done at the state, local or even national level for the NRA. And they, they see it as a feather in their cap, not a job. So a lot of those people have faded away. Some of the celebrities and people like that, um, some people I really consider dear friends who I know care but they, they never thought the NRA board was a job and they've walked away. Um, Ted Nugent would be one who, you know, love him or hate him. Ted Nugent's been an incredibly ardent fighter for Second Amendment rights. Even he stepped away from the NRA board. Um, he didn't make a big ruckus about it. He has spoken a little bit publicly about it. He was one of the few board members who has stood up at the board meeting in defense of members not being kicked out um, during the quote unquote executive sessions. He thinks that members should be more involved and listen to more. But he's, as he says, he's not a banker. He's not a lawyer. He's not there to run the organization, to run the company. So he moved on. And now we're seeing Phil Journey, Rocky Marshall, Buzz Mills, these guys getting pushed out um, after they've been very overtly involved. So it, even the board can't do anything. And unfortunately, um, it is going to, I believe, come down to the New York Attorney General's office, uh, the Washington, D.C. Attorney General's office, or some other external act to to get Wayne to relinquish his grip and to give the NRA any hope for I mean, really coming back Do you see any of this as a rebuke of what you're trying to accomplish from the members themselves? I mean, if the members believed uh, in these um, uh, allegations or, or wouldn't they uh, have the ability to 
overcome a lot of these obstacles you're talking about if they if they really wanted to? I mean, they really don't. Membership don't. organization, right? So, it, but that's the hard part is that it, it, membership is not running this organization, and the board is is you know everybody talks about it's too big and it's too uh, you know di- distracted and it's too disenfranchised from real power, mm-hmm. with the exception of a few few very important uh, like the nomination committee, the audit committee. Um, these these very important positions, these very important committees that are hand selected by the president, who essentially is, and was hand selected by Wayne Lapierre, especially in the aftermath of, of Oliver North trying to hold him accountable. Um, it's been very very hard, even for the average board member, to do anything. And the average board member has to be selected by the average member. And we've seen that the membership numbers of the NRA are going down, um, as as is not surprising. The contributions are going down. Um, and, and you got to remember, the NRA has its hooks, this 40 years of consolidation of power, and they have these hooks in, like the training community. It's one of the places I catch a lot of flack. I have a lot of people, including Frank Tate, by the way, ardent reformists who won't give up on the training division of the NRA. He still teaches NRA courses. He still certifies NRA instructors who continue to put money into the coffers of the NRA. Now, at the same time that he gets to say, look, obviously, I still support the NRA, he obviously supports the gun owners who, who in many, not many, but several states still need to take NRA courses in order to be able to qualify for their concealed carry permits, like Maryland, for example. Uh, he's doing good work and he's, he's using the NRA's value that they do bring. And, and they do bring value in some places. Their, their training courses is one of them where people find a lot of value. But I really believe that until we, we stop the money flow into the NRA, we're never going to be able to get the NRA back in the hands of the membership because it's that money that's feeding the lawyers and that's giving people reason to continue to support Wayne because they, as we know, directly benefit from their positions of power inside the NRA financially in many, many cases. Okay. All right. Well, uh, that's all the time we've got for this episode, but I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your point of view and giving us an update, especially on uh, what's going on with 80% and the homemade gun making um, world because uh, you are very plugged in there and uh, we'll have to have you on again in the future to talk more about this perhaps if there's more NRA news that, that comes up for as far as internal reforms go but uh, where can people find you if they if they want to follow your work uh, primarily the politics work I'm the executive vice president of second amendment organization 2AO.org um, you can learn about our policies and we put out a lot of information there for uh, gun rights advocates that are at the grassroots level. So how to be a better ambassador of responsible gun ownership in your community, workplace, with family, friends, and maybe even at the local political level. So 2AO.org is a great place to go. If you want to find the resources for private gun making, gunmakersmatch.com. Check out gunmakersmatch. Um, we run regional events and a big national event, but more importantly, you can find out about the companies like Polymer 80 and the people, um, like Mr. Snow, who are really making things happen for the people that are building their own guns. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. All right. It's time for the news update. I'm joined by contributing writer Jake Fogelman. How are you doing this week, Jake? I'm doing all right, Steve. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, you actually had a number of stories this week uh, in the same vein, so I figured we'd just talk about them all at once. Um Basically, this is the response from California and New York to the Bruin ruling to uh, striking down May issue gun carry laws based on you know subjective standards. Uh, and California and New York came up with basically 
the same law, right? And what happened uh, in those two states? That's right. Yeah, you, you sort of had opposite outcomes, I think, in the two states that most people expected to have the heaviest response to Bruin. So as you pointed out, New York's uh, Concealed Carry Improvement Act, they call it, uh, which is just a whole host of uh, different restrictions on the ability of people to get permits. And once they have the permit, it restricts where they can carry. Like, like for example, all of Times Square is off limits, um, which I'm sure a lot of people have been following. Um, well, that law just went into effect Thursday of this week um, that we're recording. Um, it, it, uh, the Gun Owners of America tried to sue to get an injunction on that law, saying it was unconstitutional. And sort of at the last minute, just a few hours before midnight when it was supposed to go into effect, uh, the judge handed out that ruling and he dismissed the suit on a technicality. Basically, he said that the plaintiffs didn't have standing in that case. And so as a result, that law was allowed to take effect as of September 1st. On the flip side, in California, you had a last minute attempt by legislators there to, to actually pass a bill that was very, very similar to the one in New York. Same sensitive places restrictions, a whole bunch of restrictions on actually getting a permit. And that one actually failed in the heavily Democratic legislature, um, which is a very interesting development. Yeah, kind of surprising outcomes in, in both uh, situations, sort of last minute drama there. Uh, certainly that ruling from the federal judge in New York was very odd. Um, you know, it found they did, that the plaintiffs didn't have standing and in large part because the individual plaintiff was too law abiding. Yeah. It was kind of the, the logic there um, that he wouldn't. He wouldn't break this law, right? Is the sort of the argument so he doesn't have standing to challenge it because he won't be arrested because he'll go out of his way not to break it. Uh, <laughs> sort of a roundabout logic to that ruling. And then the judge went, uh, of course, as you looked at in, in a member's piece for us, uh, the judge went to the merits anyway and basically said the law was unconstitutional. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. very weird, very weird outcome in that that case, but foreshadows as i think you laid out pretty well in that member's piece that this law is probably not long for this world um yeah I, I don't know that it's going to survive legal scrutiny for much longer it's this sort of ruling is feels like a bit of a cop-out from that judge yeah he didn't want to be the one to block it even though he was he clearly thought it was unconstitutional uh so he came up with some very odd uh, leaps of logic to deny standing in the case. And then in California, yeah, you had you had the bill fail, which uh, I don't think anyone was really expecting. Um, but it was it was in there. That was in large part due to how they tried to pass it in this special emergency way. Right. That's right. Yeah. So that, that the failure of that bill was sort of self-inflicted on behalf of the proponents of this measure. So it, the way it works in California, you can attach what's called an urgency clause to a bill. And when you do that, whenever you pass goes into effect immediately rather than, you know, 30 days or in California's case, the following year is when it would normally go into effect. But by doing so, you up the ante in terms of how many votes you need to get to pass a bill. So instead of a simple majority, like a typical piece of legislation, you now have to get a two thirds majority, a supermajority in order to pass. And they weren't able to get the supermajority. They fell short by two votes um, because yeah. at least one Democratic uh, legislator voted no. And several just sat out the vote because it was a pretty controversial piece of legislation. And as a result, they they fell short. Yeah, and they've ran up against opposition from the California State Sheriff's Association right. as well, uh, which is a pretty political, you know, pro powerful political force in the state when it comes to you know gun carry issues. 
they're the ones who actually issue the the permits in California. So, right. um, you know, they they came out in full force against this bill and seem to have succeeded in blocking it for now. Uh, I think the sponsor said he'll bring it back up in in the December uh, session that they have. But but you actually uh, you t- there was a call from the gun control uh, advocates for the governor to make a special session, right? And uh, you got a response from his office, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. So obviously this was a a big bill that had the full backing of pretty much every single national gun control group. Um, But in particular- Yeah, they helped write these these bills. That's right. And in particular, you had uh, organizations like Every Town and Moms Demand Action. Immediately they put out press releases demanding a special session. Um, They basically accused the Demo- the state legislature there in California of not having the courage to get this bill done. And so they said, Gavin Newsom, you're a supporter of this bill. You take it into your own hands, call a special session and get this done. And so I reached out to the governor's office and I said, hey, uh, any plans to, to call a special session? Um, and they, they didn't give me a direct answer, uh, but they essentially, let me see if I can find the quote here. Essentially, they said uh, that priority number one is in December, there's going to, here we go. He goes, last night's vote was a grave disappointment. Uh, getting a similar bill back to the government's de- the governor's desk should be the first order of business in the next legislative session. And the governor looks forward to signing an urgency measure as soon as possible. Uh, so right. no commitment to calling a special session there. He's kind of saying, we'll just, we'll see what happens next session. Yeah. The key words are next session. Um, I, I think that this was more of a, the attorney general's push. He, he was actually out lobbying on the floor trying to get those last couple of votes uh and it didn't go his way so uh the governor seems to have taken a little bit more of a, a backseat approach to this whole thing uh, you know i think uh there that does show some of the political limits of this uh these responses that you're seeing in california and new jersey i, I mean sorry new york, <laughs> new york although new jersey too uh but mainly those two states have been at the forefront of how to push back after the the Bruin ruling, but they're doing it in a way that's like, they're not going for gray areas here with most of this stuff. They're just sort of explicitly passing laws that the Supreme court said are not going to be constitutional uh, under the second amendment. You know, these um, sensitive places restrictions, you know, the court talked about this at length in, in Bruin and said, you know, yes, sensitive places are uh, an area where you can restrict gun carry. Um, but you can't just make it the whole Island of Manhattan was the quote in, uh, the majority opinion, opinion in Bruin. And, and so, uh, yeah, they haven't technically done that, but they've come as close as you can without technically doing that. And I don't think it's going to, uh, I don't think it's going to last. I mean, the same thing for, They've doubled down both of these states on the good moral character clause. Um, they, they're now requiring people in New York to submit their social media history. Um, the mayor of New York is talking about sending the police to every applicant's yeah. home to interview their neighbors. Like, you know, these things are all in service to a completely subjective standard of who has good moral character or not. And that's, indistinguishable from this what was struck down in Bruin, which was this good reason clause. You have to uh, have a what uh, government officials find to be a good reason 
to carry a gun uh, and they can deny you if they don't feel like you have a good reason. It's not based on any sort of objective standard. Right. It's just based on their feels, essentially. Yeah. And that's exactly what the good moral character clause is as well. So, you know, they're they're not really trying to push push the realistic limits of Bruin. They're they're just going straight past them. Right. Uh, it seems like and hitting at on, least to me. As, I don't know. To how, your point, hitting on it. on things that the justices explicitly laid out in the Bruin ruling, which is interesting. And Judge Sedeby said as much in the, in the lawsuit that he ended up dismissing. As you said, there was that joining analysis. He still analyzed the bill on the merits anyway. But he said as much. He he literally said that the good moral character requirement it does not remove the open-ended discretion that the Supreme Court said was unconstitutional in relation to, you know, proper cause or good cause that these previous states used, used to have on the books. Um, so he's yeah. literally saying, hey, the, the Supreme Court said this was no good. This, this meets the criteria that they said was not going to fly. So had, had there been standing here, this is an unconstitutional statute. Yeah, he also kind of lays out, I think, what he views as a person who would have standing. Um which is, you know, he, he goes through a whole list at the end of his ruling of people who, uh, you know, would be negatively affected by this new uh, this new permit system in New York. And so it's almost like he was telling the plaintiffs to, or, yeah. you know, the the gun rights groups who are involved in this case to go and find somebody like this to yeah. bring a case. It's it's pretty odd. Uh, it's a pretty odd opinion. But um, I mean, you know, after all that, you'd think, like, why did he go through the this through these jump through these hoops to deny standing and then immediately turn around and say this law is clearly unconstitutional and if you just challenged it with this person this kind of person someone who works late at night in the city was one of his examples or an elderly person right uh that you know you would win your cases it's <laughs> that's the feeling you get reading his yeah his opinion it's uh it's interesting too is because it's another one of these post-brewing opinions that comes down against um the, you know these gun control laws even though this one technically was dismissed um the the merits were completely against what new york is trying to do and and that's uh, there have been very few exceptions so far um in the federal courts at the lower levels to that trend you know we just saw another one this week where uh, in colorado a locality uh boulder Boulder County, which you wrote about, um, had their assault weapons ban, their AR-15 ban, uh, blocked by a federal judge. And this is the second federal judge, a different judge than Superior Colorado, you know, uh, a little while back, which we wrote about as well. And they're both uh, judges who are appointed by Democratic presidents. That's right. Too. I think that's significant as well. The only notable exception so far that I've seen, you know, and obviously you have the 18 to 21-year-old um, gun carry uh, provisions in Texas be blocked as well uh, in a post-Bruin reasoning, which we wrote about. And then uh, the only real exception to this so far that I can think of is the uh, the gun tax and insurance requirement in uh, San Jose, right, uh, where, the, where a federal judge using Bruin reasoning uh, upheld that regulation. Yeah, surety but, laws were an analog or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, but so far, I mean, uh, even at the lo the lower levels, where I think most gun rights advocate, uh, advocates are the least trustful of the lower right. courts, uh, they've 
they've really been going towards uh, this point of view that Bruin does restrict a lot of these kinds of laws that it, that it, the, they aren't viable anymore after uh, that precedent set by the Supreme Court. So, you know, the, this was another one that that's in that vein. And I think that's an interesting factor to look for going forward with California when they do ultimately return with this bill. Does that tip their rationale at all? You, there's some reporting going on about some of the discussion that was happening on the assembly floor while, while this bill was being debated, where some of the Democratic uh, legislators that were trying to be whipped in support of this bill were question, asking questions of the sponsor, like, is this constitutional? And he couldn't answer. And so that was, at least some outlets are reporting, that was some of the rationale for why certain Democratic legislators wouldn't vote for this bill. And the more rulings you have that lay out the reasoning that, hey, this isn't going to fly in the courts, does that maybe change what they do going forward? I don't know. You know, California likes to be very aggressive with these gun control legislation or these gun control bills. But at the same time, are they going to pass something knowing it's going to get struck down? Yeah, it's interesting because certainly uh, the justifications that you've seen from New York and, and California, the people who are supportive of these new laws, these new restrictions, are claiming that they are in line with Bruin, despite right. everything we just talked about. So they are selling these as like, this is what we can do inside of Bruin. This is what we've determined is constitutional. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know that they're getting the same kind of uh, uptake as they would like, because again, you know, the California State Sheriff's Association it, it pointed out that they don't think this is constitutional, <laughs> that it's, it's not only unlikely to uh, help public safety, because they one of their main points was that you're trying to, um, uh, put further restrictions on people who uh, ha historically have had the lowest crime rate uh, in the country. You know, concealed carry permit holders commit crimes at a lower rate than uh, even the police do in you know Texas and Florida, where they release uh, data for crime committed by, you know, by permit holders. And so uh, that was a big part of the reason. But the other part was like, you know, so even, even though it's not going to have an effect, a real effect on on reducing crime, it's also likely going to get struck down by the courts and you're just wasting a lot of money and resources in doing this. Uh, and I'm sure that the, sh the other thing about in California is uh, a lot of those sheriff's deputies probably have concealed carry licenses yeah. because that's those are the people most likely to get them in the old shall issue or the old may issue system. So they a lot of the people who have permits in California, you could see this in the leak. Right. The, the permit data that we reported on a while back, uh, a lot of the people who were included in that leak are either, you know, well off celebrity types or they're law enforcement and judges. So those people would be <laughs> directly affected by this new law the most because they're the ones who actually have permits right now. Right. Um, so, you know, changing, basically eliminating where they can legally carry a gun, because one of the one of the big uh um, and undercovered, under talked about aspects of this New York, California law is that it flips the presumption of where you can legally carry a gun on its head. Um, in every other state, um, you can carry uh, in a publicly accessible uh, area, including a business, if they don't post a sign that says no, no guns allowed. Right. Um, under these bills, and even even in those circumstances, usually it's not 
it might not even be a, an actual crime to, to carry there as long as you leave unasked. But um, in some states, it is a it is a crime. It's a, usually a misdemeanor. But in in New York and California, if, in these if these laws go through, and there has now in New York, anywhere that's private property, any business uh, is off limits to carry in by default and has to post a sign to tell you that you can carry there. And so this makes it in practice likely that the vast majority of the state will be off limits to, to legally carrying a gun. So that that's another thing that these like uh, sheriffs, uh, these officers in California who probably have uh, permits to carry when they're off duty um, or, or their family members or so forth. Uh, like their realistic areas they will be able to carry under this bill are have been massively shrunk down. It, it is an interesting irony, isn't it? The fact that supposedly after the Supreme Court rules that there's a right to bear arms, uh, suddenly your options for carrying are far more limited than under the old restricted unconstitutional standard. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of an interesting dynamic. Yeah, that's another thing that the, at the end of the day that I think is just going to doom these laws. Like, I don't think that the Supreme Court is just going to allow this to happen. You know, their whole point was that this is a protected right. It's not a second class right. You can't just deny this arbitrarily. Uh, so I don't think that they're going to allow a, a state to exist where it's actually harder to legally carry a gun than before their ruling that was supposed to be about how it's a right you can't just infringe on. And so, you know, at the end of the day, there's there's plenty of arguments and we've gone over them in the past about uh, how this is all going to play out. Certainly, I think it's likely the Supreme Court will have to get involved at some point. Um, although, like I like we just talked about, the lower courts do seem to be um, paying more attention to what the court had said in Bruin. They're, they're not finding as many ways around the these uh this new standard as they did with the old standard under in heller but um you know the the argument against this the court doing anything is that it took them so long between heller and and bruin to do anything that you know maybe they do something about it but it will be another decade before that happens and that's effectively they might as well not be doing anything right but and and look that's not an unfair argument based off the last you know, 12 years, but, you know, this court just took up two cases in a row that were gun cases. The first one did get mooted out of New York, but then they immediately took up another one. And it doesn't seem like the court with the makeup the way it is now is just going to allow this New York and California to like completely rebuke them in extremely transparent ways. You know, yeah. it, it will be harder to legally carry a gun in New York now than it was before Bruin. And right. I don't know that the court is going to allow that to stand. No, I think that's right. Yeah. Particularly on a, on a gun carry case, because they've already dipped their toe in that yeah. water. I think they'll be less hesitant to touch on that and to clarify that than maybe right. perhaps touching on like an assault weapons ban or something like that. Exactly. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think they're going to not like I just don't see these laws lasting. Yeah. Um, but but we're going to follow it. You know, we, we don't we can't predict the future here. That's just the best of uh, best guess, uh, best analysis that we've got. But but we will absolutely stay on top of it. And 
yeah, I think that's all we've got for this week. Um, make sure you, you stay tuned again for, ne- for next week's episode. Although I think we'll probably take a break at some point soon here. We've been doing it for, I think, like a year straight every week. So uh, um, we'll look for maybe a week where there's less news. Uh, but uh, it might not be next week. We'll see. We'll have to <laughs> figure out. Uh, what it makes sense, most sense to take a break. I mean, maybe we should wait until after the elections. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, either way, we're done for this week. If you want to support the reporting that we do at The Reload, uh, the best and only way to do that is to go over to thereload.com and buy a membership today. You know, we've got monthly memberships and yearly memberships. Um, and that's what funds our reporting. That's what keeps us going. That's where we get all of our income from so we are uh, a small independent news publication not owned by any major conglomerate or anything like that and uh, we are funded entirely through membership dues so that's that's uh, that's how you can help if you want to do so and the other way if you want to help for free <laughs> is to uh, go ahead and leave a, a rating on whatever podcast app you're listening to this. I mean, if you've made it this far into the show, uh, I imagine you enjoyed what we're doing here and it would be very helpful for us for you to spread the message, to leave a writing on uh, any of the podcast apps, uh, give us a thumbs up on YouTube, write a comment, you know, interact, share it with all your friends and family. uh, And and that's it for this week. 